0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Damon Santola who is a professor in the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, also in the School of Engineering, Department of Sociology and the head of the Network Dynamics Group there at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the author of two books, this one, the most recent one, called Change, How to Make Big Things Happen, and this other book, How Behavior Spreads, the Science of (laughs) Complex Contagions, right? The visual image doesn't really do much for you. But welcome, Damon.
0: Uh, Thank you. Good to be here these books are about network
1: theory which is i think a discipline that is relatively new relatively recent and is considered a subfield within sociology but it's something which we encounter in other disciplines certainly in in marketing in business schools but there's a huge overlaps with, with epidemiology and you know with the recent coronavirus there's been a lot of attention that's been paid to kind of network dynamics and infectiousness and virality of disease. And so this has brought attention back to network theory. And there seems to be a lot of dialogue, a lot of back and forth and a lot of analogizing between the diffusion of diseases and the diffusion of ideas, beliefs, behaviors, and so forth. Do you think of these as sort of subfields of the same discipline, or or do you think that it can sometimes create problems, these analogies between epidemiology and sociological applications?
0: Yeah, where my work really picks up is that we've used the disease model from epidemiology for, you know, 75 years to describe behavior in various guises, and it's gotten more sophisticated in the last couple of decades, but largely because we actually have a lot of good data on how diseases spread, and we understand fairly well how networks operate increasingly in those contexts. And it makes sense to take what we know and then try to generalize it to the questions we don't know, which are like, how does human behavior change and how do social networks operate? For example, like on the web and on social media, but of course also in neighborhoods and with the growth of social movements, things like Black Lives Matter and also things like now with the vaccine question around uh, the pandemic. And what my work is really focused on is the question, does this disease model really work for studying behavior? And that led, it's a simple question, but actually led to some profound breakthroughs that the model of behavior really that we had been using since the 1940s, and that's really when network theory and the whole sort of concept of opinion leaders and influencers and all that stuff comes online at the same time, that that model is wrong. And we just couldn't see it clearly because we didn't have the right kinds of methods in social science. And I think that social science has often been accused by the natural sciences of not being systematic, not being rigorous, not being replicable. And so What my work is really focused on in the last two decades is developing large-scale scientific experiments using methods from physics and and biology to test really our, our core theories of behavior spreading, of social change, of innovation, adoption, and so forth. And the major breakthroughs really have come from the discovery that there's, you know, really two different kinds of contagion dynamics. There's the classic disease model, which is uh, simple contagion. And then there's understanding how behaviors spread and behaviors do spread. They really can be contagious, but the contagion model that describes behavior is a completely different model than the one that describes diseases. And that's the model of complex contagion. And so the vast majority of my work in the last decade is focused on like really understanding the distinction between simple and complex contagion and how it plays out in, you know, pretty much every domain, innovation, diffusion, the spread of understanding of topics like climate change, sustainability adoption, and of course around issues in the, in the pandemic, the adoption of face masks. And it, it's conspicuous that you see that the, you know, the COVID-19 virus the novel coronavirus spread really effectively across national borders and across social categories and across political groups there wasn't a problem there but then face masks didn't right face masks were like really clustered by social group and political party and so it it really highlights that there's a distinction to be made between The contagiousness of a virus and the contagiousness of social behaviors and what my work does is say look it can start to feel when you see how all these things don't work the same way as if we have no science and that's not right either it's just that the science has now really in the last decade pushed us to the point of seeing what the right model is and what the rules are that behaviors follow and then all of a sudden it gets really productive really fast that's why i wrote the book is because We had a lot of breakthroughs in the last decade that give us some very useful insights into how to use this new science of complex contagion.
1: Is it just that the old model of simple contagions was wrong, or is it just that the kind of boundary conditions were not recognized, that using this epidemiological model works for for certain things in the book you talk about how you know memes things that don't require any real kind of commitment or investment by anybody these things actually do spread in a way that looks like the the spread of a disease right they flow through these weak ties is is it just about figuring out which of these models is the most appropriate one depending on what it is that we're the diffusion
0: of which we're, we're studying yeah. And the reason in many ways that the, sec- the book Change, How to Make Big Things Happen, focuses on like take-home lessons is because what people really wanted after I wrote the first book was almost like a playbook of like, all right, what am I looking for? How do I know? And so I wrote it that way, which is basically you're looking for certain factors and you're trying to determine whether those factors are going to play a role in whether people adopt a behavior or not. So credibility is a big one right? Is there an issue of credibility with this behavior? And if there is, people are looking for social proof. They're looking for what other people are doing. And that factor really matters in terms of the, the network dynamics in a way that it doesn't affect diseases. diseases. People aren't looking for social proof for the disease. And that actually plays out in very significant ways. And another one that's probably the biggest one that, that shows up almost all the time for social contagions is legitimacy where people are looking really for social approval for a new behavior because it's a new behavior, right? And so this is where change almost always involves being a complex contagion because it's going against what people are already doing. And so one way that I try to highlight it is to say, look, if you have a person who has one uh, contact in their social network who's infected with COVID-19, it doesn't matter how many healthy people they know. All that matters is that one contact with a sick person but if you ask that same person whether they're going to adopt a face mask if they have one person who's wearing a face mask that they know and everyone else they know isn't wearing face masks and they're aware of that fact then they're self-conscious about wearing a face mask while they're talking to all their friends and family who aren't wearing face masks they feel self-conscious and uncomfortable and that is the nature of legitimacy. Is you're looking for, often in implicit ways, that we don't ever explicitly talk about, approval from the people around you that what you're doing is normal. And so that's where the influences, or what I refer to as the countervailing influences of the non-adopters, play a really disproportionate role in the spread of social contagions. And that's one of the sort of key things that separates the social complex dynamics of behavior spread from the sort of disease dynamics of simple contagions. So I was wondering if we'd go back in time a little bit in
1: the earlier days of network theory and talk about the popular conception, or at least right. the most common insight that people take away from network theory, which has its origins with Mark Granovetter and Stanley Milgram, the strength of, of weak ties. Actually, and I was pleased to see that Mark Granovetter actually in- endorsed your book. Uh, From an outsider perspective, they might think, oh, wow, Damon's just uh, bashing Vedder's theory. But it's really a compliment to, to that theory. Could you walk us through that insight and how that spread itself like a virus throughout sociology, throughout economics?
0: Yeah, and this this is a kind of a history that I do briefly in, in a hopefully entertaining way in in this book just to get people into thinking about what networks are and what we understand about them is that it goes back like I said to the 1940s and this is where some social scientists were trying to figure out how new products spread. Even before that they were the same people who were trying to figure out how new candidates become, you know, acceptable to the average voter. What they realized was that there's all this campaign information that comes out over the in that, at that point over the radio, or there's all this product information that comes out over television. And the question was, well, how important is that information? And what they discovered, and this is where networks really come from, is they had this sort of epiphany that actually the vast majority of that media advertising was not hitting most of the population. It was only landing on a small number of people, and those people were the kind of very active, engaged, interested people who had these sort of high media consumption diets. And then those people also tended to be very social. They had lots of people they knew. And this is where the concept of the opinion leader comes from. And so that gave rise to several intuitions about spreading in social networks, but none of that stuff was really fleshed out. And it was really, Mark Granovetter what already did in the 1970s was put the entire field on like a new footing. His work was uh, a major development in sociology. It's the most highly cited paper in the entire discipline because it's not that it was mathematical, but he formalized it conceptually. He said, "This is these are the core concepts. The concept is your close friends and family really well. We're going to refer to those as strong ties. And strong here refers to like intimacy, trust, right? The kinds of things that we find very intuitive when we talk about interpersonal relationships. And then he noticed that the people that you know really well tend to know each other. So then he made this connection between like what we understand intuitively, personally, about the people we know, and then this idea of the structure that sits underneath that, which is essentially like a geometry. It's like a bunch of triangles in the social network. The people you know well tend to know each other. And then he contrasted that with the casual acquaintances you have, the people you meet in the airport, the people you should sort have of bump into. And he said, look, those people don't mean much to us. We wouldn't lend them a large amount of money. We wouldn't ask them to watch our kids. So we don't think of them as in our social circle. And we certainly you know, wouldn't put them on a list of the top 10 people we know. But Then he shifts back to kind of a a structural or geometric perspective. He says, but those people, even though they don't mean much to us personally, do this like huge important work structurally for the society, which is that they have their own cluster of strong ties. And you have a cluster of strong ties. And those two groups, of people don't know each other, but that contact between you and this person form a bridge or a link across these two distinct groups. And so if there's one sort of set of ideas bumping around in in your social circle, then that link between you and this person acts as a conduit for transmission for that idea over to this other group. Now you can see how that's very clearly based on the disease model. It would be the same if someone infected someone else in an airport and they go home and they bring that disease back to everyone else, which is pretty much the same thing as someone getting on an airplane in Wuhan, China, and then getting off an airplane in New York City. And so that model was used to describe information spreading. How do we learn about new jobs? Well, the people you know well tend to all know about the same jobs because they all know each other and they all pretty much have similar lifestyle things in common. You bump into someone you don't know well, and they're part of a different social network. And so they know about things, openings, opportunities that none of the people you know well know about. And so new job information kind of jumps across the social network through these weak ties. And so the the intuition was the strength of weak ties is that They are doing this structural work of bridging like a large and and complicated social network full of different groups of people in ways that now connect everyone and allow information to kind of propagate very quickly. When Milgram was doing the small world experiment at Harvard, Granovetter was a grad student there. And Milgram said, oh, look, I can measure the social distance between (laughs) all the people in the country. And Granovetter's deep intuition was Milgram's finding the six degrees of separation but it's got to be because not because people are all interconnected all over the place, but because people just kind of live in their little social groups. But there are these links across them, and so they weak tie for those links. And so Granovetter provided like a very deep conceptual foundation for Milgram's intuition about the small world, and that's why it was so profound. Is because it it shows up everywhere. But very quickly, as we tend to do, people generalized from the information transmission or dynamic and the kind of underlying viral story there to everything. So the and Grinevator did too, it was a natural intuition to say, oh, and this is also how social movements spread. This is how the civil, at that time, they were talking about the civil rights movement. And today we would generalize that right to the Black Lives Matter it happened. And this is where my work really picked up is I noticed when I was working on these questions in grad school was that the data from the civil rights movement and from other sort of social change movements weren't showing that weak ties mattered at all. Even though those weak ties are there, they just weren't being used. And so that's a kind of a, a weird problem, which is <laughs> like, well, if they're not being used then they don't matter. So why is that happening? And then this is where I realized that it's because those weak ties are super useful for spreading information. But when it comes to mobilizing for a dangerous or difficult social movement or adopting a product that no one else you know is using or switching from traditional family planning to like using contraception, right, all these kinds of things that require like going against what everyone you know is doing, just having one week tied to someone you don't know that was not going to be enough to convince you to switch your sort of lifestyle. But when people around you start shifting, then all of a sudden that becomes more normal for you too. And I think I can contextualize this more more broadly by saying, yeah, it's absolutely right. Granovetter wrote a very nice blurb for the book, but he's also, you know, Mark is a good friend. And in many ways, he's one of my intellectual heroes. I think that the work he did in the seventies established a new foundation in many ways, like a new conceptual rigor for social science. And I think of it as a testimony to his intellectual qualities that When I was working on his work and developing these insights and and working on these papers and then developing this book, that he didn't really see it as a threat. He saw it as like an interesting set of new discoveries that he was happy to help champion. And that's the kind of caliber intellectual he is. He actually cares about the ideas more than his own particular reputation. He's a serious scholar in the sort of grand sense of things. Well,
1: it's funny the overlap also between sociology and economics, right? Because as economists reading this and you talk about coordination problems, Of course, you know, thinking about the game theoretic description of the problem and you're talking about network dynamics. And of course, here in Silicon Valley, the best way to get funded for a startup is to prove to your funder that the idea you have is going to initiate some network effects. And if you believe the Granovetter story, then the best way to diffuse this new product, this new idea, this new behavior would be to use uh, as you say kind of the shotgun approach right plant as many seeds in as wide a, a dispersed fashion as possible unless of course you have someone who has like a huge number of social ties weak ties one of these kind of super spreaders or social influencer in which case you all you need is this silver bullet you know and i was just looking at this the, the launch of this new product called clubhouse and you know this thing has spread far and wide. Not a lot of people use it. You know, a lot of people downloaded it. And I think their approach was to, it seemed like it was a combination of the two, a little bit of a a shotgun and a little bit of a
0: silver bullet. Yeah. Clubhouse required you to get an invitation from a friend. So they were cleverly targeting this kind of network contagion dynamic, which I think was a, a smart way of trying to build their membership. One of the interesting things about what Clubhouse is that it's multiple different things, right? So Clubhouse is it's in many ways it's like a pandemic technology, which is to say it's a lot of people go to conferences and conventions, right? Comic Con or whatever thing you go to, but they go to these big events and they come and they they sit and like just kind of occupy audience seats. People talk to each other on a panel, and it's fun, I guess, if you're into this topic or people go to sports conventions as well and they see famous athletes talk to each other and tell stories and so clubhouse was set up like that like it was basically you'd show up as an audience member and watch some people talk to each other and so it was a really familiar model of like what this thing is and then you could come be in the audience for all these different events people could also use it to create their own events and and this is a different kind of section of what Clubhouse would be used for is to like build your own communities and events. And to my understanding, that's been less successful in terms of the the goal of Clubhouse. And so I think that's telling in terms of the simple complex contagion dynamic. You tend to see things grow differently depending on what kind of technology they are and how they're used. And for like pandemic era convention technology, where you can just come in and listen to these kinds of things, then I could actually see that being fairly straightforward as a simple contagion technology. Getting people to build communities and to share events and to co-create events seems like a bigger ask. And it would be interesting to see how that actually would get built and how the networks would play a role. One of the interesting things about the internet studies that I talk about in the book like the spread of support for same-sex marriage or the growth of Black Lives Matter is that oftentimes the people who study these can document cases where certain things spread like simple contagions and other things spread like complex contagions. Like You can actually draw a very clear line where the dynamics are for simple memes, they people just spread them from person to person exactly in the way that you would expect. But then as soon as there's like just the smallest around of social risk, a great example of this is tweeting with a hashtag that has a political affiliation associated with it that might be offensive to some of the people that you're connected to. And so people tend to wait until there's more social support and peer reinforcement for that hashtag so that they feel like it's just generally acceptable to use it before they use it. And that's different than just a standard meme, in which there's no social risk attached to it. And that's also true for things like the spread of support for same sex marriage, which people, although they might privately support it, didn't want to come out early on because it was associated with certain groups and they didn't know what it was single about themselves. But then, they, as they had more and more people adopt in their sort of social network, and interestingly, more and more people from different social circles adopt in their social network. It convinced them that it was like basically a broadly legitimate thing to support, and that the signal of adopting was a signal of supporting this thing generically and not like a personal signal about them. And what's interesting about it is that even though the contagion dynamics spread in this sort of complex way, which seems like it should be slower, it spread to like 2.7 million people in a week, right? So these dynamics can be really quite fast if they take hold of the network in the right way. And that really gets to your question about what I talk about in that chapter that focuses on targeting or what we call like seeding strategies, which is like how to initiate a kind of critical mass process to get this, this sort of change off the ground and. Yeah, I talk about the shotgun approach, which is basically the viral approach, get you know as many different people all over the place as possible. Basically, you want exposure for your idea. That's the intuition. And as you can see, right, intuitively, that's based on the disease model it's the more people who are exposed to a disease the more likely an epidemic is going to take off and that's the logic and then the silver bullet of course is the like just find the special person and sink all your resources into them and under the assumption that it's going to take more to get that person to adopt but once they do then you've got takeoff and the thing i try to encourage people to do when they're looking at each of these strategies is to say oh okay, sure, that works really well for (laughs) spreading the measles or COVID or any other sort of viral contagion. But now imagine that we're talking about spreading like contraception in a population of people who aren't familiar with it and wouldn't necessarily adopt it unless they felt like they were comfortable. Or talk about face masks or vaccination. The person who's highly connected also has a lot more people looking at them than everybody else, which means they have a lot more people evaluating and ultimately judging their behavior than everyone else. So getting them to adopt early on is actually really quite hard. And even if they did adopt, everyone that they're connected to is also connected to a bunch of other people who aren't adopting the behavior. So the status quo bias is really quite thick in these networks, particularly when you're trying to initiate some kind of change. You can think in the context of social media about trying to get people to move from Facebook to some new technology, and you know Google tried with Google Plus. They exactly tried the shotgun strategy. They're like, we're just going to make everyone have Google Plus. We're going to force it on the world. We're going to have 200 million users in a week. And it, and you know how could that fail? And it's you know it did fail. And that sort of I think should be something that we should all sit up and pay attention to because it violates in a really conspicuous way like all of our intuitions about what should work. If you're Google. How could you not succeed? It's because if you don't use a social strategy, the sort of standard viral approach isn't gonna get you any closer to success than if you're a small startup.
1: Well, that's true I think with Facebook where they began with Harvard and you had to be a Harvard student to use it and then ultimately spread to a few other colleges. Whereas I think Friendster, you know, they had some users in Indonesia and had some users in in the US and the user base kind of uh, scattershot.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about the growth of Facebook, and there's a very nice study that I talk about in the book that actually looks at the growth of Facebook and then also the, the engagement, participation in Facebook, and both of those are complex contagions. And one of the reasons we do social science isn't just to kind of describe post hoc what succeeded and what failed, is to be prospective. It's to say, like, here's a theory, here we can use it. But it's also useful to look back and then ask questions about past cases and say, almost using the theory in a prospective way, but with historical data. And to say, okay, so this is what our theory should predict about why Facebook succeeded. Is it true? Can we look at the data through Facebook and interpret? And it turns out that it is true that the way that Facebook spread was through multiple reinforcing ties and people didn't just sign up right away, they required like multiple people from different social quarters to adopt. And that some of the strategies that Facebook used, just intuitive strategies, actually were these kind of what I refer to in the book, and I contrast the, the shotgun and the silver bullet approach, which are intuitive for viral contagions, with the snowball strategy. And the snowball strategy is like you target a bunch of people who are clustered together and build a cluster of support and then have like a bridge that carries that cluster of support to a new community. And that's the book goes through you know, dozens of different cases where that succeeded historically. And then also again, prospectively, but where people use this strategy to build social media bots and show that they can actually spread things on the web. But that actually describes the Facebook strategy as well, where they focused on a campus, built support on the campus, and they get the multiple connections from that campus, let's say from Harvard to other campuses that were deeply connected like Stanford or MIT or Berkeley were sufficient for then creating social reinforcement that then grew support on that campus and then that spread to other campuses. And it was this kind of growing coordinated support and then triggering a a sort of a change process across what I refer to as a wide bridge And as I talk about in the book, that's also the way that Twitter spread. So we've got a lot of success stories that follow that model that even though it looks like you're kind of limiting your resources at the outset, you're focusing on these clustered groups instead of getting your word out there as far and wide as possible. What you're actually doing is growing this like reinforcing support for something that doesn't just get people to adopt it, but it gets people to stick with it. Because those reinforcing networks are actually become the reason why people don't leave it when Google Plus comes along. And so what you're actually doing is growing commitment in addition to growing adoption.
1: So this would suggest that the kind of influencer strategy that so many companies use is limited in its potential impact. Certainly with the policies to try and get people to take the vaccine, a lot of these policies have been around, let's get our celebrities to take pictures of themselves getting the vaccine and then broadcast that far and wide through social media. And then this will induce people to go and get it themselves. But you highlight that that these kind of influencers or these people with a large number of followers, they can often serve as more of a speed bump than as an accelerant to the diffusion of new ideas.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and that's one of the moments where the book really becomes more prospective than descriptive, right? Because this is exactly what the book predicts is that you can get the high profile people to adopt, and the only people that will be influential for is the people who are already receptive to the message. So the people who are maybe feeling, oh, it's inconvenient, I'd get the idea. But then they see an influencer and like, all right, that gets them over the hump. But the people who are feeling distrustful of the message itself about vaccination Seeing an influencer only makes them suspicious of that influence. It doesn't change their fundamental receptiveness. And so to drive that point home, you can flip the tables and say, if people, you know, six months ago, if people are wearing face masks and imagine people in the sort of, because this was a highly partisan distinction between people who'd wear face masks and those who wouldn't. So imagine you've got like a liberal community of people who are sensitive to all the vaccine issues and they're wearing face masks. And then all of a sudden, Joe Biden stops wearing a face mask. Does that mean all those people are gonna stop wearing face masks? No, it means all those people are gonna repudiate Joe Biden, right? An influencer can't just do whatever they want. They have to be sensitive to the, the sort of audience they're speaking to. And this is where the bias in a community plays such an important role. And the emphasis on influencers is misguided because it overlooks the fact that influencers are really only influential when they're reinforcing our existing biases. Which is another way of saying they're spreading simple contagions. And as soon as they try to sort of push us beyond our biases, well, then we just look to the people around us and we're like, that person is now part of that institutional message or agenda that we distrust and whatever, forget that. And the strategies that are more effective in these cases are to try to build support from within networks, which is, it's something that people haven't really worried about except for like grassroots organizers it's the kind of thing that grassroots organizers have thought about for a long time and in terms of the response to the book there's certainly a lot of government agencies i'm talking to now who are trying to figure out how to implement this but the people who should have responded immediately and just said you know I read your book and exactly this is what we've been experiencing over the last 20 years are people who've been doing like grassroots organizing for sustainability or for social change. And they're like, you've described exactly what our experience is. And it's also true for organizational change. I have a, a chapter in there that builds on these ideas and talks about what we know about how to change the culture within organizations and the people who sort of work on those kinds of questions say, yeah we've so many of our theories and organizations are based on information trends. we've always focused on this idea of brokers as brokerage is hugely important but those are basically narrow bridges they're weak ties they're the sort of information channels across an organization but They're super ineffective for like changing the culture of an organization. And this idea of wide bridges between these different organizational clusters is actually what we found to be the most effective thing. And so now there's a large theoretical apparatus that like provides support for that. But that's, I think one of the things that's most interesting about this is that People have all of these stories. They just haven't had a framework for explaining them.
1: So you mentioned social proof, right? There's a concept that we use a lot in marketing. And I think a lot of people, when they think of social proof, they think that it's all a numbers game, right? So McDonald's will say over a billion burgers served. And I think you're saying that the sheer numbers don't matter. What matters is the percentage of people that are in your local network among your ties that are adopting this new behavior. And if that's the case then when we think about social proof, we, we have to think about it in a very different way. It's not simply to say as seen on TV or as used by the celebrity or widely adopted. And if you're recruiting, say for World War I and you have this wonderful story in there about how they the English military recruited, it's not enough to say that you know a million people have signed up. It has to be your neighbor signed up,
0: right? your friend signed up, your, your cousin signed up. Yeah, the strategy I talk about there with the PALS Battalion, which was ridiculously effective for mobilizing support for World War I. And again, with regard to this, what I refer to as the snowball strategy is there's sort of an irony, which is instead of just doing this sort of blanket nationwide campaign, they targeted like neighborhood parochialism, which is the very reason why people wouldn't go to war. Because they feel more tied to their neighborhood obligations than they do to feel to like the national agenda to sort of go abroad and fight a war. But by mobilizing campaigns that basically said you can fight with your buddies, the people that you know in your hometown... Then hometowns actually got behind the war effort and people mobilized together and generated the largest volunteer army that Britain had seen to date. I think one of the ways that we think about social networks now is that when we talked historically about thresholds, we almost always talked about them as numbers, as you need two people or three people or four people. And what that idea had always been insensitive to is the fact that if you have a lot of people that you're paying attention to who aren't doing this thing, they again, they're this sort of set of countervailing influences. And so the whole notion of complex contagion kind of puts us in mind of that. Now, to be clear, there are conditions where complex contagions only do require an absolute number. So for example, if we're interested in confirming an urban legend, right? You hear it from one person, it doesn't sound quite true. It's not the same thing as news because it just sounds like, I don't believe that story. We may need to hear it from two, three, four other people before we believe that is actually possibly a real story. The reason why countervailing influences don't play as much of a role in that case is because we can't sample all the other people around us and find out whether they know that story. The countervailing influences aren't really present in our awareness. And that's different for most norms. For most norms, we're actually, we can see the behaviors people are exhibiting. Like face masks is a great example, but also buying solar technologies. You can see whether people put that in their house or not. There's a kind of conspicuousness to the non-adoption. And that visibility and that awareness plays a large role in those cases. And in those cases, you know, which is the vast majority of cases, then... We're paying attention to the sort of fraction of people because the non adopters are, even without intending to be, a real sort of social signal that we have to notice in any case where we're thinking about legitimacy. So, a lot of the interventions that you talk about,
1: you know, policy interventions right around birth control or kind of market introductions by companies, they sort of accept the network as given. People have their ties, and you have to figure out how to work with those ties. But within an organization, you can manipulate those ties by making it easier or more difficult for people to communicate. In fact, in, in management, a big part of business organization is deciding, right, who sits with whom and who gets to communicate and how we compartmentalize different parts of the organization, and there are a lot of implications for how to do this right from your work. And to get back to your point about creating these bridges, if you're trying to facilitate innovation within an organization, there are ways that you can turn off and and turn on communication channels. How do you do this? How do you break down silos, particularly within an organization?
0: Yeah, I would say that this part of my work is one of the parts that's resonated the most with audiences. And that's basically that the way to think about social networks is to think about social contexts, which is people interact in places. And obviously, during the pandemic, we don't have physical workspaces the way we used to, but we typically also still have meetings. And so those meetings are virtual meetings. We see other people, we interact with other people, are brought into teams together, they interact. And so that becomes a context for interaction. Mm But pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, we obviously have lots of physical spaces where people interact. We have, I give this story about the food trucks at MIT, right? But so it's like we have lunch routines that determine the people we interact with and bump into. We have obviously our hallways, which are where our office is located and the people we bump into. We have our project teams, the people we interact with on those things. And we also have like our office events that we used to have a sherry hour. And so- these are all locations where people come into contact with each other. And so the thing to think about is who are the people that my employees, or depending on the context, my students, if we're looking at organizational administration for universities, what are the contexts that are framing their social network? And if we would to change those contexts, so in a really literal way, I mean, taking people's office assignments and changing them, right? So the people that they bump into when they leave their office are different people. Well, now you're altering in a really deliberate way the pattern of interactions that they're having informally. And you can also change their project teams. And now in a more formal way, you're altering the pattern of interactions they have. And this is something that, this is a set of results I had in a set of papers that I talk about in the book as well, that was exciting to a lot of people who work in organizational behavior because it takes the classical approach to organizations, which is often kind of qualitative and ethnographic, people sitting there taking notes or doing surveys and then trying to sort of put it all together and figure out like what the organization is and how it's behaving. And there wasn't a way of tying that to network theory. And so what this work does is provide an overarching conceptual framework, which is actually all of that work is really good at identifying contexts. So once we we can actually still do that work, that's productive, and then we can use it to then describe all the different contexts in which people interact with each other. And then what I developed was a model for taking that and then inferring what the network structure of the population is. And then once we know that, we can talk about simple and complex contagion. We can talk about social influences. We can talk about the, the dynamics of contagion and make real predictions about what's likely to succeed and what's likely to fail. And then we can make Again, prospective decisions, and say, what we'd like to see is that these groups aren't as connected as they need to be. We need wider bridges here. So let's rearrange these project teams. Let's change these hallway assignments. And within an, an expected period of time, and, and here the mathematics is useful because you can start to get estimations for time scale. Like, what's the time scale? On which the network will self-organize in a new way. And then that's the time scale in which then we can think about then initiating a change process. And again, the last decade in social science has been very exciting. We can do some, some very serious work. And, and again, people who have worked in these spaces have thought about this stuff very seriously. And what's, what's really happened in the last 15 years is that the science has basically been put on a new footing by the capacity to evaluate our theories in a way that doesn't just allow us, I think a lot of people have this kind of old fashioned notion that we like falsify theories. Like, that's not true. Scientists don't falsify theories. It's not true in physics. It's not true in biology. It's not true in sociology. What we do is we take the evidence that we have available and we see where the scope conditions of the theory fail. And we realize that actually the parameters that we thought worked don't work. And we just keep reshaping our theoretical ideas. And sometimes that involves rejecting a set of concepts that we had used. And sometimes it involves Adopting a new set of concepts, right? So the complex contagion enters the lexicon. And then we can talk about dynamics in that way. And that kind of shifts our orientation. And all of a sudden, everything about like weak ties and influencers becomes constrained, as you mentioned earlier, within like narrower boundary conditions. And we have a broader theoretical model now for describing it. There's story after story about the same exact thing happening in physics and, and in biology. But so the the ultimate implication of this is that we can now have a science where we can do, and to my mind, one of the biggest breakthroughs is do experiments, and that allows us to identify causality. And that, to my mind, has been the Achilles heel of social science forever, is that we've been able to look at you know historical data and then try to make some inferences about what was happening. But to be honest, without causality, you don't have any kind of policy, right? Because every single policy, in organizational policies, public policies, it doesn't matter, every single policy is a causal claim. The claim is, if I make this change right, institutionally or in terms of the incentives I give people, whatever it is, that the collective pattern of behavior will, as a result, be changed. That's a causal claim. And unless you can test causal claims, which require experiments, there's not really any way of doing science like that. And so in the last 15 years, what we have now is the capacity to do that in a very systematic way at a large scale, and most importantly, in a replicable fashion, right? So we can show that this works, and it works in a repeated way. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why, again, I I wanted to write the book to share with a broad audience just how far things have come just in a couple of years, you know?
1: Well, I agree. I think that's probably one of the most exciting developments in social sciences. We've had experimental economics now for a while, and Now we have experimental sociology, which has definitely has some overlaps, but in experimental economics, you know, we've moved from kind of lab experiments to field experiments. And it seems like in sociology, you rapidly went into the field. And so you did some experiments like the health buddy experiments where you would architect the networks and see what different impacts you got from these interventions based on how the networks were architected. Maybe talk a little bit about how those experiments are designed and implemented. And to what extent do you think that they can be done on a much, much larger scale? We know about the large-scale Facebook experiments where they tried to get people to vote and expose them to different information from their network. Can we do these kind of large-scale experiments in companies in the field for large-scale social interventions? I mean, we haven't seen, for instance, for COVID, the FDA did not require any clinical trials on any of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. If we're going to do a pharmaceutical <laughs> intervention, we, we have to go through clinical trials. If we're going to do a non-pharmaceutical intervention,
0: we don't go through clinical trials. I like that idea. I'm part of this uh, task force in the World Health Organization working on what's called the infodemic, which is the spread of misinformation. So I, I love the idea of some sort of international body doing FDA-style trials to approve interventions. There's two big punchlines about this, or maybe a better way of saying it, there were two big epiphanies I had. And epiphany one has to do with the difference between individual behavior change and collective behavior change. And the behavioral economics work is a work that describes individual psychology and basically says, look, economics has been operating under the assumption that psychology works, particularly microeconomics, right? Microeconomics has been laboring under the assumption that this model of rationality is a decent approximation of human behavior, which to say there are a lot of, I think, unsophisticated critiques of the classical rational model that just say, oh, it's absurd, people aren't like, it's like, well, so yeah, every scientist <laughs> makes assumptions that are abstract. Newton made absurd abstractions, right? But they really worked very well. And so the logic of science is we use idealization. That's how science operates. So the idea is that ra- you know rational choice theory is a nice idealization of human behavior. And it, it hung around for a couple hundred years. It was really the enlightenment that sort of birthed that formalization and it seemed to work really well. I consider it a sort of feather in the cap of economics that they were able to push their method and their thinking far enough to interrogate that assumption so effectively that they're able to say, this is a false assumption, right? And. It doesn't mean, again, theories aren't falsified. It doesn't mean that all of economics goes out the window. It means that like that assumption about human behavior doesn't operate effectively under a lot of cases. So now the boundary conditions are shifted and we say, okay, for those cases, we need to understand how human behavior actually operates. But all of that is assuming that people are acting as individuals. You give them some stimuli and they respond. And the one sort of I would say shortcoming of this space isn't really a specific problem for behavior economics, it's just that all of this is built on the foundation of psychology. And so that methodological individualism is fine, except that it doesn't really tell us what happens when you put a bunch of people together and have them responding to the stimuli, but also responding to each other, responding to the stimuli. And that complexity is something that's just never been part of the space of economics. They haven't really worried about that. They've done some network studies, but it's always assuming that everyone's responding as an individual to the information. And then there's some process of adopting or responding to the other people, again, just as informational signals or strategic signals, but not the broader space of like questions about credibility and legitimacy and how that interacts with the ways in which the networks are structured. And so complex contagion becomes informative in that space in terms of thinking about like norms in economic decision making, where norms can be formalized in a fairly rigorous and, and scientifically usable way as opposed to just kind of a generic way of saying like what people tend to do. So that is a major orientation of my work and was really the reason why I invented a method was because I had initially developed this theory of social change and contagion and there wasn't any way to evaluate it scientifically right there and i had this sort of crisis (laughs) when i came out of grad school because no one who worked in the space that i worked in had ever tested their theories. It wasn't. It just wasn't like a problem for people. You know, you could write some compelling papers. Durkheim actually didn't, he repudiated contagion entirely. He had a he totally different theories, theories like this. It just, there was structure and then structure just produced behavior, sui generis, which is an interesting idea, but it, it's a kind of a different space. But Durkheim's a nice thing to bring up though, because what Durkheim tried to do in his book, Suicide, was to my mind, very much the aspiration that framed my thinking. Because what Durkheim does is he does this like, really obsessively careful comparison of societies, right? And he can, he holds all these societies side by side and he says, well, this society is like they're Protestant, but they're like this and they're, and these are Catholic, but they're like this. And he's trying to kind of weed out all the differences and to say, can we find a couple that are basically the same thing except for this one thing I care about? So you can say what he wants to do is to say, I can hold these two societies side by side. They're otherwise identical, except for this one difference. And you see this massive difference in suicide. And therefore, I can infer causally that one thing caused this difference in suicide. And that certainly was my ambition too. But what I wanted to do was to create a method where I could make that kind of causal claim in an experimental way. Hopefully not with suicides involved. I was not studying suicide experimentally, no. When I say that kind of causal claim, stylistically. But what I was interested in was studying the dynamics of simple and complex contagion in a large-scale experimental way. And I was influenced by the fact that I had read some work in population health, and I thought that it was very clever the way that people had shifted from an individual treatment perspective to a population treatment perspective. And they said, look, we always do this thing in public health where we pick the sickest people, and we say, let's fix them. But what we're ignoring is that generation to generation, that distribution is staying the same, right? We're just like targeting the low end of the distribution, but the mean is staying the same, which means every generation is reproducing that same distribution with that same low end. So what we should be doing is trying to shift the entire distribution up so the low end of the distribution is actually in the safe range. I found that really compelling. And I thought, well, that's what we want to see. We want to see a contagion dynamic that shifts the entire population. And so it really... Believe that you can't study that without studying each population as its own kind of self contained entity, which means we can no longer study individuals one at a time and then say, well, and then let's just aggregate post hoc and say, uh, with this, you, you study a thousand individuals one at a time and then a, you imagine put them all together and you get, you know, some aggregate or some kind of amplifying quotient or coefficient. There was a term for this that economists had developed, like the social magnifier or something. But it basically is a coefficient. You multiply times individual effects and say, this is now this is your social effect. And I feel like it was just wrongheaded in the sense that I'm not repudiating economists because I feel like that there's a lot of excellent work that I use in my thinking. But I think that that particular assumption is, is the wrong assumption because what we really want to do is we want to look at the dynamics of how people interact and then what the ultimate aggregation process yields in terms of the collective behavior trajectory. And the real sort of goal was to show that if we were to intervene at the network level and change the network properties of the sort of interactions among people, we would produce radically different outcomes, even though the distribution of people in the network were the same people. So we're saying, look, psychologically and in all in terms of all the properties that we think matter, these people are the same. And in terms of like the stimuli or the thing that we're spreading, the technology is the same. Right? So the only thing that's different between these two different worlds is the, the kind of pattern of connectedness, which people don't actually see. They never see the network structure. They just see you know, people interacting, and that's just like we do. We see our friends, and we kind of know who they're connected to. But beyond that, we haven't a clue what the network looks like. And to be honest, unless you're a networks geek, you really don't care what the networks looks like. Who spends our time thinking about that except for like us network scientists, right? The point is that these features of society, despite the fact that they're invisible and we don't care about them, are nevertheless causally important. And that's where the intervention question comes in. And so, you know, the, the second epiphany I had was that if I wanted to study real behavior, instead of build an experiment, create a stylized kind of experience, and then collect the data I wanted, but just to say, look, if what I'm really interested in is studying the dynamics of social propagation, I should just be able to imagine a space where that's really happening. And I had something in my head like the biosphere kind of experiment that the people had built where they kind of put a bunch of humans into the self-contained environment and just studied how they behaved. And interestingly, it actually was self-sustaining biologically, but it fell apart for social reasons. And that was the way I was thinking about it. Or the other analogy I like to use is like a Petri dish, which is to say, well, when you're growing, penicillin, you really just want to like study that petri dish and and watch the, the sort of responsiveness of this fungus to whatever bacteria is there. Could you imagine doing that in a way that would allow us to replicate petri dishes and show that we can every single time we make this intervention, the petri dish grows this thing in the same way. And so I landed on a health community, but we've also done this in like, you know, all all different kinds of communities. You can do it with a bunch of people investing in stocks. You can do it with people shopping for products. It's the same dynamics in each case is that, You connect people to each other in a space where they're doing something that they would do anyway, and then just watch their behavior evolve. And to my mind, one of the most exciting things about our day and age is that social scientists, particularly sociologists who are studying these kind of collective network dynamics, no longer have to make excuses about external validity. You don't have to say, I designed this weird experiment with a stylized model. I had people do the prisoner's dilemma, but actually it applies to all these other things. You can just say, look, I studied people adopting a health technology in a context in which people were there to adopt health technologies. Also, it happened to be an experiment. And yes, absolutely informed consent was was given. I think that ethics is a huge part of this, not just in data collection, but also in like how we think about this work. But we can create these real spaces and health winds up being very nice because I ran this through the Harvard Center for Cancer Prevention. And there's a lot of people, and I mean like hundreds of thousands, who come to that website just looking for like health advice. And if you offer them an opportunity to join a health community, they'll do it because they think it's interesting. And to me, that's, that is exactly the right way of studying human social behavior, is you just find stuff that people think is interesting and you study it. <laughs> but if you can do that in a controlled experimental way... Wow. That's why it's a new era of doing social science. Yeah. So a lot
1: of the people that I've interviewed have talked about social capital and kind of the the importance of social capital, of understanding the type of social capital that you have in your society and in your organization. And I think what you're proposing is really the promise of, of a science of architecting social capital, not only within organizations, but potentially with, within societies. Do you think that the people who are potentially interested in this are the folks who are doing it for good? Or you mentioned the folks who really are onto this are oftentimes doing it for nefarious reasons, right? So you you talk about the the 50 cent party in in China. Do you you think that there really is a prospect of a science of architecting social capital that we can use to advance positive policy goals at the
0: national level and uh, kind of positive corporate goals at the corporate level? I think there is, and I think it's being used already. I do, as you can can imagine, quite a bit of consulting for, sometimes for governmental organizations and NGOs who always have the best intentions. Oh, (laughs) 76ers. Yeah. And that was, that's a good example. When the 76ers called me up, like, I think about those cases. Do I care about helping the 76ers win? Is that something that's important to me? And is that what am I doing ethically by investing in a sports team and helping that team to make better scouting decisions? Is that does that sort of hold up to the standard of the application of social science that I think that we should, as, as serious people, care about? And the reason I did the project was because, to me, interesting upshots of the project was to be able to understand the impact of these technologies, which work and have been replicated in lots of different cases, on how people kind of feel about their relationships with others, particularly in a fairly hierarchical environment professional sports. And I wanted a better understanding of that. And I felt, first of all, that seemed valuable to me intellectually, but also it seemed to me like a good thing to know whether or not people were feeling some sense of personal benefit in addition to sort of what we were seeing in the improvement in collective intelligence and decision-making. And as I described in the book, when I talk about the work I did with the Sixers, I actually learned a lot about how people experience these kinds of network effects and even the degree to which they feel empowered by them, which I hadn't anticipated, but was really useful to see. Because a lot of the work we're doing now applies to this science to the the challenge of vaccine hesitancy, like in the African-American community, which is one of those places where you feel like I don't just want to convince people to adopt a behavior. I'm not interested in like, tricking them or nudging them to do something. I'm interested in creating like more empowered, more engaged relationship with public health. And so learning how these technologies affect people's thinking about themselves and their relationship to the the opportunities that are in front of them, I think is really valuable. And I think that for all social scientists, it's important to be selective about the ways in which their work is applied. And I also think that one of the questions that I would get a lot when I first published that book was, isn't this incredibly dangerous should you be publishing these books and papers because you're basically giving people a recipe for how to manipulate populations and you know i give the example of subliminal messaging and like the fact that we did a bunch of science around it but the point is you know the science sure the science gives some really specific instructions about how to do subliminal messaging so that's dangerous But the science also allowed us to regulate subliminal messaging because we could identify the exact frequencies and without that you can't regulate it and the the assumption has to be that competitive organizations are trying to figure out how to do this stuff all the time and they're probably going to figure out some haphazard thing that kind of works sometimes and not others But to the extent that they're capable at all of social manipulation, we want to be able to detect it and regulate it because that gives us a better society. And I think that's true for network science as well. The extent to which we can improve our understanding of the science certainly allows us to do better public policy, but it also allows us to anticipate cases where it might be abused And then to be, I think, a little bit more vigilant in our sort of relationship with places like Amazon and Twitter and Facebook. And when I consult for these companies, I make that clear that's my position on this so that there's no ambiguity about what my role is there. I feel like it's fine for me to help out, but I also believe that there should be a certain level of accountability with this kind of science as well.
1: Well, there's lots of great other insights in the book and speculations uh, ranging from Amazon's two pizza teams all the way to the rise of Europe (laughs) in the early modern period from the microscopic to the macroscopic. Lots of fascinating insights. I recommend both of these books, How Behavior Spreads and also Change. Damon, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hope to uh, connect at some point in person.
0: Great. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.